You may be seated. Good morning, Hope Fellowship. Glad we're all able to be together here at the 9 a.m. service. My name is Jeff Brewer. I'm one of the pastors here at Hope. If you're here for the first time, we want to welcome you. We're thankful you've been able to make it here to this place, a little kind of back alley way coming down into the basement here but we're glad to be able to be together. Um, I do want to just, I, we're gonna, I'm going to summarize Acts 10 and 11. I'm going to read portion of chapter 10. Um, as I preach, I'm going to summarize it. But I do want to just point, as John was talking about giving, um, one thing that stood out to me at the beginning of this passage in chapter 10 is Cornelius, a Gentile, uh, it says he gave alms generously. And then later when the uh, angel appears to him, he says, your alms has as- have ascended before God. And so I think that's a, probably one of the clearest instances in the New Testament where we're taught that our giving is an act of worship. And so we're not just worshiping when we sing. We're not just worshiping when we hear God's word read. We're not just worshiping when we hear God's word preached. We're worshiping when we give what God has entrusted to us as good stewards. And so I did just want to point that out as we won't spend any time on that. Um, One other thing, this week we also have the opportunity, as we've been saying, to host a blood drive up in our offices upstairs. It's a chance for us as part of the community to help um, replenish the Northern Illinois Blood Bank, which has been very low and lowered because of COVID, because of lack of being able to take blood drives. And so if you have any time on Tuesday and you'd like to do that, we do still have some slots available, especially in the evening. And so again, that's just one way we can be a part of our community and help serve in our communities. And so there's more details back in the back. There's a little QR code you can um, scan with your phone. Also, you should have received an email in our weekly update about that. Well, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 10. As we continue in our series in the book of Acts, I'm going to read starting in verse 34 of Acts 10. I'm going to read to the end of the chapter. And so we're again we're picking up in the middle of this story where Cornelius hears from the Lord, Peter hears and sees a vision from the Lord, and then they come together and this is what happens when they come together. So Peter opened his mouth and said, "Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him." As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism of John that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead." To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because of the gift of the Holy Spirit was being poured out even on the Gentiles. 
for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Would you pray with me? Father, we entrust this time to you. Father, all of the cares, all of the concerns, all of the difficulties of this last week, we lay at your feet and we ask you for help that we might focus on your word, that we might be engaged with our minds and our hearts on your word. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, in 1987, uh, Peter Robinson, a speechwriter for Ronald Reagan, spent time in Berlin preparing for an upcoming speech that Reagan would give in the city. And foreign policy advisors and diplomats from the city repeatedly warned Robinson that the speech would do well not to bash the Soviets or to even mention the Berlin Wall. When Robinson sat at dinner with some from the city later that evening, and he asked them how they'd gotten used to this wall in their midst. Someone said they could never get used to the wall because they hadn't seen their sister in 20 years. And the hostess then said, if Gorbachev was serious about peace, he would tear down this wall. Unknowingly uttering what would become one of the most enduring lines of any presidential speech in history, Robinson wrote the speech for Reagan when he then stood at the gate the next day and said, Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. The, when the wild cheers had been subdued, he said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And the crowd came unglued. That speech, as you know, would lead to the events that would eventually have men and women standing on that very wall, swinging sledgehammers, swinging away, at what had divided them for so many years. And the Berlin Wall, just like the zone that separates Korea today, it seemed as if nothing would be able to tear it down. But there have been other walls throughout the years, both metaphorical and literal, walls of slavery, walls of racism, walls of ethnic support, supremacy, walls of gender, walls of fear, walls of class, and all of these walls don't come down easily. Well, here in the time of Jesus and in the time of the early church, there was a wall that existed between Jew and Gentile that was marked by great hatred and animosity. In fact, it was a wall that would rival many of the literal walls that have separated people throughout history, and it makes even the racial divide that we are currently experiencing in this country look tame. But what we see in Acts chapter 10 and chapter 11, what I hope we see today is that God, through the cross, through the resurrection of Jesus, tore down this wall between Jew and Gentile in order to make salvation available to all peoples, not just to the Jew, but to all nations. So, so here's kind of the main point. Here's really what I would call maybe my, my basic assertion that we should take from these two chapters in Acts chapter 10 and 11. If God can tear down the wall that divided Jew and Gentile, through the good news of Jesus, there is no racial, ethnic, economic, or class barrier that cannot be overcome by the gospel today. 
Now that's a long thing, it's a mouthful. But let me say it again. If God can tear down the wall that divided Jew and Gentile through the good news of Jesus, there is no racial, ethnic, economic, or class barrier that cannot be overcome by the gospel today. So I want us to look at these two chapters as a whole, and I want us to see God's call to Peter, so the call. Then I want us to see the criticism that he faces as a result. And then I want us to end by looking at three essential ways this must impact our attitudes towards others, in particular along the topic of race. So not just everybody out there, how should this affect other people, but at Hope Fellowship, in our hearts, how should, this, how should God How can we be praying that God would be using this in our way? What is essential? So that's where we're headed here this morning. So let's look first here at the call to Peter. And really, this kind of takes us almost through the whole chapter of chapter 10. And right at the beginning of chapter 10, we're introduced to Cornelius. And he's a soldier in the Italian cohort. He lived in Caesarea. And Caesarea was right along the coast. It was actually the, um, the, the seat of the Roman government for all of Judea. So it would have been a bustling city. There would have been a lot of Romans there, a lot of Gentiles there. And verse 2, it tells us about Cornelius, who was a Gentile. But look at verse 2, it says this. He was a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. So here's Cornelius, and he's a non-Jew, but he feared God and he was a friend to the Jewish people. Now, here's what happens kind of throughout the next few verses. Cornelius has a vision, and he's called by an angel to send men to Joppa, which was about 31 miles south of where he is in Caesarea, to send men to Joppa and to get Peter and to bring him there. So while they're on their way, Peter then, he has a vision. And, and I love this. If you look at verse, starting in verse 11, it says, uh, it says that he's hungry. He goes up to the rooftop when they're preparing meal. So just, I just love the fact that he's hungry and he has a vision about food. Kind of like, mmm. <laughs> so he's hungry, he has a vision about food, and here's what it says. He saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheep, a sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. Now, interesting, again, what's Peter do? He argues first. But everything seems to come in threes for him. The rooster crows three times. Jesus asks him if he loves him three times. And here he's told three different times, what God has made clean, do not call common. But, but here's what we need to kind of make sure. Whenever we come up on words like clean and unclean, uh, these aren't being used in the way we would use clean and unclean today. It's not like hygiene or make sure to use Purell sort of kind of sense. But to be clean was a ritual state of purity that enabled the people of Israel to be able to worship in the temple. So to be unclean doesn't mean necessarily that somebody was sinful, just that they were unable to participate until they went through the purification rituals. 
Now, here's Peter. He's lived his whole life. He says here, I've never eaten anything that's common or unclean. His whole life, he's kind of obeyed these laws. And so he doesn't have a category for what God's doing because the laws about cleanliness had been so ingrained in his thinking. You know, it says he was perplexed. And and then later it says he was pondering these things. He had to kind of really think hard about them. Even though Jesus had told him it wasn't from without that uncleanliness came, but from the heart, and that the gospel was meant to go to the world, Jesus said, Lo, I will be with you always, even to the ends of the earth. Peter hadn't connected the theological dots. The truth was out there, but he hadn't connected it in his mind. And what this vision was and is, is is a clear statement that in the cross and resurrection of Jesus, God opened up the way to all peoples by Jesus fulfilling all of the purification laws and opening up the way that is not just to a physical place of worship, but to a person through not just a physical, not, not through a physical temple, but through the temple of Jesus that he is the temple, he is the way we can worship God. Anyone who believes in him, even, it says, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That's the clear statement of what Jesus has done and how he's brought forgiveness. So, so here's Peter, he's pondering these things, he's, he's trying to connect the dots in his mind. And once the men from Cornelius get to Peter, he goes with them, and by the time he gets to Cornelius, he finds out that Cornelius has gathered a large group of friends and family to hear him speak. And now look at the very first thing he says to them. Look at verse 28. And he, this is Peter, said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Now, he's acknowledging what they all know. He's essentially saying, why why am I here, you ask? You know, and I know, Jews don't associate with Gentiles. You are Gentiles. But, and, and he knows Leviticus. He knows Deuteronomy. He knows they had declared certain foods clean and unclean. But maybe what's not even yet dawned on him is that the Jews, over time, had begun to go above and beyond the law, and they were taking it and making it their own tradition, and saying, essentially, it's not just these foods that are unclean, but it is people who eat these foods who are outside of Israel who are unclean. So in that way, the the Jews went from being separate from the nations, as God was calling them to be, to thinking they were superior to the nations. So here's how, look, here's, notice the way Peter applies the word. So remember, God declares through this vision, all foods clean. Now look at how he applies it. He, he takes the very next necessary step. He says this, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Now th- this is a seismic shift. It is massive for, for Peter and for the Jewish Christians at the time, as they're starting to grapple with what this message of Jesus really means. But Peter doesn't even stop there. Look at verse 34. He says, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, 
But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Now, I'm not going to comment more than this on verse 35, but to say that when we read something like anyone who fears him and does what is right, that's not teaching that there is somehow kind of a works righteousness. Just do what's right enough and you'll be accepted. The do what's right is going to be defined how he goes on and preaches the gospel. Do Do what's right is believing in Jesus alone for salvation. But here's the the key thing he's saying here is God doesn't show partiality. God doesn't have favorites. Deuteronomy 10, 17. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and Lord of lords. He is the great God. He is the mighty and awesome God who shows no partiality and cannot be bribed. 2 Chronicles 19, 7, 7. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God, or partiality, or taking bribes. And so what we should take from this is God, in his character, he is not swayed by influential people. He bows to no one. There's no one bribing him to look the other way in his judgments. He always does what is right. He always sees all things. He knows all things. He always does what is right and just. And so in this way, he's no respecter of persons. He doesn't show favoritism because there is no one more important than him. And so this is at the basis of what is, the character of God is at the basis of what Peter is learning about these clean and unclean common foods. Now, for us, When we think about this call that's repeated throughout the New Testament, not showing favoritism or partiality towards certain people, it's repeated in Romans, it's repeated in James, it's repeated in, uh, I think, Ephesians, when we're not kind of showing partiality or favoritism towards certain people or groups or wealth, we're being imitators of God. So be imitators of God is the command to us. We're talking imitators of God by imitating God that he does not show favorites and does not show partiality. We don't look to the way of man and what's right in society's eyes, but we look to what is right in the eyes of God. And so that's where we have to take from Scripture how we view other people. We cannot take, regardless of when we live, look, if we lived in the 1800s, we would view people differently than we view people now. But people in the 1800s should have been taking their their, uh, key from God's word, not from what society said was okay, or the 1400s, or the 700s, or the 200s. We have to use the word of God as our foundation. And so we have to see that, you know, really, this is at the heart of why racism is such an insidious sin. Why racism is a gospel-diminishing sin. It's, racism is a sin because of this, what Peter is teaching here and seeing, that spits on the very cross of Christ. Because it's someone or it's a group saying, I deserve God's love, but you don't. I deserve his mercy, but you get none. I deserve his favoritism, but I can oppress you. And so what we have to remember is racism is a gospel issue because it demeans people that God has made in his image. 
And it reminded me of a sad story that I read a few years ago. And I'm going to read this quote, and this is about Mahatma Gandhi from India in the 40s. Mahatma Gandhi shares in his autobiography that in his student days in England, he was deeply touched by reading the Gospels and seriously considered becoming a convert to Christianity, which seemed to offer a real solution to the caste system that divided the people of India. One Sunday, he attended church services and decided to ask the minister for enlightenment on salvation and other doctrines. But when Gandhi entered the sanctuary, the ushers refused to give him a seat and suggested that he go elsewhere to worship with his own people. He left and never came back. Here's what he said. If Christians have caste differences also, he said to himself, I might as well remain a Hindu. That is just shocking, isn't it? To just, just let that sink in for a second to realize and to remember that this is what sets the gospel apart. And it is so insidious when there are such divisions that all people can't be unified around the gospel. So God's call to Peter is to treat no one as common or unclean. Now let's turn very briefly to the criticism that Peter faced. And so look at, look at chapter 11 verses 1 and 3, 1 through 3. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to the uncircumcised men and ate with them. So I'm sure news travels quickly, right? The Spirit has fallen on the Gentiles. And so before even Peter gets back, they know what's happened. And so immediately when he gets back, he he faces criticism from the circumcision party. And this circumcision party is the, are the same ones who in Acts chapter 15, just a few chapters from now, essentially were saying and teaching that in order to become a Christian, you have to first become a Jew, and you become a Jew by being circumcised and then by following the dietary and following the laws, and then you can become a Christian. So the way to Christ is through Judaism. And what was kind of repeatedly need to be stamped down for 15 years at least, because we know Galatians, they're dealing with this same problem, is this constant need to say, it is in Christ alone. It's not through the law. It's not by works. It's not by following dietary restrictions. It is through Jesus alone. So, so Peter, again, now if you notice, if you go back, I would really encourage you to read these two chapters. And what you're going to notice as you read is the repetition just how many times he tells this story over and over, and he's going to tell it again in Acts chapter 15. But so this repeated, so it's important. Look at verse 17. This is in chapter 11. If then God gave them the same gift to, to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? So you see what's happening there is, is Peter is essentially saying, If God is at work doing something and I don't understand, the fault isn't with God, the fault is with my understanding. So who am I to stand in God's way? Now look at their response in verse 18. When they heard these things, they felt silent. You kind of almost can kind of picture the scene. He's saying this, everybody falls silent, and then they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. 
So here's this great opportunity then for them to say, God is at work among all nations, not just the Jewish people. And so again, they're going to continue to have this issue come up in Galatians chapter 2. And even Peter himself will be a hypocrite along with Barnabas, believing theologically what's true, that there are no foods that are unclean, but then bowing to the pressure by these men who wanted to force him to kind of live by their law and their rules and their traditions. So let me summarize again just Acts chapter 10 and chapter 11, that God is reminding the early church the character of God, that he shows no partiality so that the good news of Jesus can be proclaimed to everyone and that Christians might live differently in a way that imitates God by not showing favoritism. So that's kind of a, a quick summary of chapter 10, chapter 11. Now let's, let's spend the rest of our time and let's think about three essential responses for Hope Fellowship today. And so three things that I, I believe are essential for us as Christians at Hope to take away from this important passage, especially in light of the racial divide in our country. And so here's the first one. Again, my apologies for how long each one of these are. I I can send you my manuscript later if you don't want to write all these things down. It's essential that we think biblically about race, not merely take cues from what our culture promotes at the moment. And so it's essential that we think biblically about race, that this text, God's word, is king over our lives. Not merely take cues from what our culture promotes at the moment. Because if we just think back in history, we can say culture is not a reliable guide to what is honoring to God. I think we can all agree on that, right? Culture is not a reliable guide to what is honoring to God. And so what's happening here in Acts is the spotlight is being shown on the dignity that God has for all men and women as made in the image of God. And so at times in our history... Our American culture has not promoted that all people are made in the image of God. Some people, Colin Hansen actually just said he calls this Americanized Christianity-ism. That that's not Christianity. It's a kind of version, a perverted version of Christianity that kind of essentially takes what we believe, in particular about slavery, and in particular holding down an entire group of people, an entire race, and essentially blocking the view that God has made all people in his image, and that we all have dignity, and we all have value, and we all have worth. And so what we have to remember, it's essential that we know, men and women of all races are made in the image of God, that we are image bearers. That's why murder is so wrong. We are created by God with dignity. We are created by God with purpose. We are created as his image bearers to live in this world, to work in such a way that promotes his glory. But what's happened is, because of sin and the sinful nature now dwelling within us, that has been perverted. It's not been a, the image of God has not been erased when we've sinned against God, but it's been twisted and it's been warped such that we have to be suspect even of our own hearts and our own motives. And so as a result, it's essential that we treat people with dignity and respect. But we do so recognizing the heart that we have in our own selves. Now here's here's what we need to remember right now. 
and where we sit in terms of history and what's happening here in the 2020s in, in our country in particular, but also around the world. Look, race has always been a politically charged issue. But even more in the last year, when it's already been a politically divided atmosphere. So I'm just going to be very honest with you here. The most discouraging thing for me as a pastor, and I think I can speak for John and Jeremy and for Aaron as well, the most discouraging thing for me as a pastor in this last year is hearing both directly and also through gossip that people are judging others who disagree with them politically. Essentially, the way it looks is this. I saw so-and-so post on such-and-such this. I don't know how they can be a Christian if they think that way. And just so you know, it's not just the left or it's not just the right. It's both firing guns at one another. And that's wrong. So that's the, the most stern correction I'm gonna, I think I've ever said to us as a church. But the seeds of gossip and the seeds of kind of favoritism and judge, in particular judgmentalism is wrong. And we really need to look at our own hearts regarding that. The conversation then, look how this happens. The conversation that should be governed by God's word, it becomes politicalized and it becomes political and it becomes divisive rather than biblical and redemptive. Look, there are ways to talk about race without painting either person into a corner. People who are white who are beginning to grapple with racism and what has happened in our country, we should not paint them all as white supremacists if they say things in a way that we disagree with. And to talk so is to, about them in that way is intentionally provocative. But likewise, all people who would say this phrase, black lives matter, just because somebody says the phrase black lives matter, does not mean that they are promoting LGBTQ agenda or the political organization called Black Lives Matter. What they're saying is, Black Lives Matter. And then somebody says, well, all lives matter. And they're saying, yes, but for so much of our history, black lives haven't seemed to matter. So I'm saying, black lives matter. And so if we treat them, who's beginning to grapple with how to deal with widespread injustice as a liberal Christian who probably doesn't even believe in Jesus or is about to soon reject him, is wrong. It's also intentionally provocative. So, so it's essential that we think biblically about race and not just take cues from our culture. And look, our culture is always going to be telling us how we need to think. And we need to keep talking about God's word. What does it teach us? This leads us to the next thing that's essential. It's essential that we have evident love for one another as we speak about race. It's essential that we have evident love for one another as we speak about race. Look, so, so let's say again, let's just, let's just talk bluntly again. To disrespect another Christian and to judge them as, in your heart as an unthinking idiot because they think such and such, it's not loving and it's not kind. It's not how Jesus interacted with people. It's not loving your neighbor as yourself. You know, I love in Philippians 4, 5, uh, Paul says this, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Let your reasonableness. Look, to be reasonable, it doesn't mean that we don't have convictions about truth from God's word. 
It doesn't mean that we're not standing on truth. We do. And the truth is, Christianity provides a stable bedrock foundation on which we can think rightly about race. And it gives a solution to the problems that we're facing. Look, here's what we have to agree on. The solution to the problems our country and the world is facing is not found by what the world's solutions say they're going to be able to solve these things with. It comes through people knowing the love and the grace of Jesus. So it should be our desire, no matter who we're talking to, that they walk away. My hope that when anybody talks to me, and I, my hope is for anybody talks to anybody at Hope Fellowship, is when they walk away, they say we are, they are a reasonable person, even if they completely disagree with us that we love Christ and we want to make him known and we want to apply truth, especially to matters that really, really matter, like race. And so it's essential that we treat others as image bearers and it's essential that we have love. If we have all these things, Paul says in in 1 Corinthians 13, but have not love, we're a noisy gong. We're a clanging cymbal. So that's the second thing we, we must have. It's essential we have love for one another. Third, it's essential that we keep the gospel at the center of our unity. Now, look back at what Peter said in 1036. As the word he sent, this is God, to Israel, preaching good news of peace through, Lord, through Jesus Christ, parentheses, he is Lord of all. So the good news was good news of peace, Peace with God and peace with others. Now, in in Ephesians chapter 2, 13 and 14, it's going to speak directly about what's happening, these implications of what's happening in Acts 10 and 11. And if you remember in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith in Christ. Starting in verse 11, it begins to talk about Jew and Gentile and the dividing wall. And so listen to verses 13 and 14. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And so through Jesus, God brought peace with him through Christ for us. So there's a vertical peace. Through Jesus, according to Ephesians 2, there is also a horizontal peace with others that can be made because our unity is not in what we think or our own culture or our beliefs or where we're from. Our unity comes in Christ. And so seeing how God has broken down the barrier that existed between Jew and Gentile demonstrates that since he has done that, since he has broken down such a uh, tall systemic barrier in Israel, since he has done that, he is able to break down barriers between any race, between any people, between any division. And so our unity doesn't come by the color of our skin. Our unity doesn't come from where we're from. Our unity doesn't come from a political party. We have unity that goes far deeper. We have a familial unity, a family unity in Christ. But just, just so I don't misspeak, what this doesn't mean is that there aren't ethnic or racial distinctions. The dividing wall coming down doesn't mean we're colorblind. 
It means that we're not dividing over race or ethnic lines, and we can be truly free to celebrate how other cultures and other races and other people celebrate Christ in a multitude of different expressions. We don't all have to be the same. We shouldn't all be the same. But we can be unified in Christ, and we can appreciate all people because of what God's doing in them in a unique way, even if we don't understand because our culture or upbringing or, or, what, or our means by which we worship him look different. So Hope Fellowship, it's essential that we live and think and act like Christians during these difficult days, that we're filled with compassion, that we listen to those who are screaming out for the world to hear. Look, there are people all around us screaming. And the answer is not, scream louder, Christians. The answer is, be broken like Christ was broken for them. Be humble as Christ was humble for them. Be loving as Christ loved for them. And so, we are Christians who imitate our God, who show no partiality, And we don't allow divisions over race or ethnicity or class or status or politics to divide us. Because in a very real sense, from this passage, God our Savior is telling us not to allow walls to be built between people or for those walls to remain. In a very real sense, God our Savior is calling us to tear down that wall in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that we have such a sweet Savior in Jesus, that no one here, all of us coming from so many different backgrounds, all of us coming from so many different places in so many unique ways that we rebelled and ran from you, no one here deserved your grace. And so, Father, we thank you that you have made peace with you, with, for us, through Jesus. Father, also, we thank you that we as Christians have a true solution to all of the problems that we're facing as a country, as a world. Father, thank you that we can rest in Jesus and we can seek to be Christians speaking truth in love in a divided world. Father, we do pray for our community. We pray for our city. We pray that even in these days of great upheaval, that you would be pleased to bring revival. We pray that you would start with us. We ask for you to be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and let's worship in song.